Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here, and glad you're with us. If you walked in late and didn't hear the announcements, I just want to, and even if you did, I want to put it in front of you again to sign up for our All Church Retreat. This is going to be an incredible time together to get to know one another, to understand the city that we all love, and and to go deeper into the gospel of Jesus uh, together. So sign up. If you can only come Friday night, that's fine. If you can only come Saturday, that's fine. But it's going to be a great time, so uh, sign up and, and join us. But I really am glad you're with us. Uh, we're beginning a new sermon series this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So over the next seven weeks, seven to eight weeks, we're going to study Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 and looking at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. The, the author of, these, uh, of the apocalyptic vision of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John, and, and these seven letters were to be delivered to these churches, uh, these churches as Jesus' words. Uh, they, were, they were written around 70 to, to 90 A.D., most scholars think. And so this morning we're going to look at the first letter, the church in Ephesus. Let me give you a quick context for this city of Ephesus. Ephesus was uh, a major crossroads of civilization. It was a free city. It was a a city that was self-governed. It was a major trade center for all of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, William Barclay called Ephesus the vanity fair of the ancient world. Uh, It was uh, at least New York City of today. It, It was a beautiful city had one of the major seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana, this massive, extravagant temple. Uh, This temple alone had over 155-foot marble columns. This was uh, an an incredible, wealthy, and influential city. And as important of a city as it is, Jesus does not want to address the government officials. Jesus doesn't address the city council. Jesus doesn't address the board of education. Jesus wants to address and speaks directly to the church. John Stott said that these seven letters could be titled, What Jesus Thinks About His Church. See, the Lord Jesus is deeply concerned and deeply passionate about us, His people, His church. And so let's turn our ear this morning to hear what Jesus wants to say to us in Revelation chapter 2. If you will stand as we read God's word to us this morning. It's in your bulletins, also on the screen, and their Bibles as well in your pews. This is God's word to us this morning. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would, Holy Spirit, speak unto us and to our spirit, that we would have ears to hear. And that, Lord, we could see this church in Ephesus and 
Uh, and Lord, understand ourselves in light of it, that we might know that you just weren't speaking to Ephesus, but you were speaking to Christ Central Durham on April 24th on a Sunday morning when these words were written. And so would we listen, and would you speak, and would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the one who preaches, be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So Dan and Grace Casey, who some of you know, have been coming to our church for the, the past year, and they were recently in Costa Rica on vacation seeing old friends, and Dan was telling me about what happened when they were there. Uh, Dan and Grace were on a beach. It was a beach that Dan was quite familiar with. Dan uh, had lived in Costa Rica for a year, and they were just enjoying the day. And if you know Dan and Grace, then you know Dan is six foot plus, super athletic football player. Grace is five foot, uh, maybe five feet tall, cheerleader in college. And, and so here they were enjoying the day on the beach, playing in the water. And Dan said the water was up to about his waist and, and uh, Grace was uh, with Dan and the waves were rolling in and it was just an ordinary day. It was an ordinary day. And all of a sudden Grace says, Dan, I, I can't touch the bottom anymore. And Dan reaches out to grab Grace's hand, and a major riptide sucks Grace and Dan under the water and pins them against a rock wall. Now, Dan, somehow able to lift Grace out of the water, enables her to grab hold of the wall and climb out while he is still pinned underneath the water against the rocks. For over 30 seconds, Dan is held underneath the water, being pounded on by waves against the rocks, while his wife looks down, yelling and screaming and praying for her husband. And as Dan thought, literally he said, I thought I was about to die. He said a last prayer for deliverance, and a big wave comes and unlodges him from underneath, lifts him up to where he can grab hold of the wall and climb out. They're not here this morning, I think they're going to be here next week, but... He can tell, they can tell you the story. Amazing story. They, they should have died. Now here's why I tell you that story. Not just to be dramatic. I think it's a pretty good metaphor to describe what happened to the church in Ephesus. And what could happen to us. Dan and Grace never saw the riptide coming. They didn't see the danger coming. It looked and it felt like a normal day. To the church in Ephesus was planted by Paul the Apostle 30 years earlier than this letter was written. They thought they were pretty normal, a normal church. And then this letter arrives saying that a riptide had taken them underwater and that they are in grave danger. So the greatest threat to our life with Jesus is a very real danger, one that we could never see coming. It's what occurred in Ephesus in verse 4 which literally could be read this way. I have this against you, church, that the love you had at first, you have abandoned. Jesus is saying, you don't love me like you did at first. That's the danger. Now, the passage starts with giving us a picture of Jesus in verse 1. And this is where I want to start Look at, look at verse 1. It says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars are the seven churches that Jesus is about to address. And Jesus holds them in his right hand. He is an authority over his people. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the lampstands are the seven churches. And he walks among them. Jesus is present and in the midst of the churches. 
And then verse 2, Jesus speaks, I know. And that's going to be a constant refrain in each letter. I know, I know, I know. Jesus knows. He knows their thoughts. He knows their deeds. He knows their works. He knows that they have abandoned their first love. Jesus knows. When fifth grade teacher, Miss Nolan, would sit at her desk, she cornered it in the, the kind of catty corner so she could see the whole room, and she would sit there, and she knew everything that happened in her classroom. I never understood it, but she, she knew everything, and she would walk in and through the aisles of our classroom. Nothing happened without her knowing it. Now, that, that was frightening and comforting for a fifth grader, all right? I knew I was protected by Miss Nolan. Nothing would happen that, to me, but I also knew I couldn't get away with anything. Couldn't get away. You see, Jesus knows our thoughts, our deeds. He is present and among his people. He guards and protects us, and he's never absent from us. Listen to what Sam Storm writes. Sam Storm writes, There is no meal ever served where Jesus does not sit with us. No night ever spent with him not next to us. No sermon ever preached that he does not evaluate. No sin ever committed that he is not aware of. No tear ever shed that he does not see. No pain ever felt that he does not share. And no song ever sung that he does not hear. Now for some of you, that is frightening this morning. Because that means there is no secrecy. Jesus knows our secrets. And for some of you, this is comforting. Because it means there is no pain nor struggle in which you are alone. Jesus walks among us. Jesus knows us. And as Jesus walks among the church in Ephesus, he has a commendation for them. He has a word of encouragement. So let's look at this commendation, verses 2 to 3. Jesus says, I know your works and toil. He knows that their deeds are good. He says, I know your patient endurance. He knows that they endure in the midst of suffering. And then he says, I know you've, you've tested those who are false apostles. He knows that they love doctrine. They have good theology. Now, we're not sure who the Nicolaitans are, but the Ephesians hate their work because they're heretical. So Jesus is applauding this church for being a people of good works, who are willing to suffer, who have good theology. Now, I don't want to rush past that too quick because those are all admirable and worthy things. I hope and I pray that Christ Central Church is a church filled with good works, with people who endure suffering, and a church with good theology. We should care deeply about all three of those things. But at the same time, we can be a church full of good works, Performing deeds of mercy and justice, a church where the spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and prayer are in practice. We can patiently endure right, as a people who live in a culture where Christianity is more and more spoken against, and we can stand strong in the midst of this culture that's changing quickly, and we can have good theology, read and study old books and new books, and all the while be in grave danger of being ripped away from what matters most. Our first love, Jesus. So being a people who do good and a people who think correctly does not mean that we'll be a people whose hearts are captivated and enamored with Christ. Too many churches 
can be ripped away from loving Christ because they, they replace the love of Jesus with a love for good works or a love for thinking right about God. I've seen this in churches that lean towards the left. Right? They're deeply committed to social justice. I've seen it in churches that lean towards the right who are deeply committed to orthodoxy and theology. Loving Jesus can easily be abandoned in the name of doing church. And that's what's concerning about this church in Ephesus, and it should wake us up, church. Let's look at the critique of Jesus. So really, verse 4, you've abandoned your first love. The love that you had at first, you've left it behind. Again, this church is 30 years old, Ephesus is. It was planted by Paul. Now they're receiving this letter. Right? They, they didn't just wake up one day and this be true. Over 30 years, it was a slow, gradual drifting away. It was unexpected. They didn't see it coming. And now they're in danger. Do you know what you have to do for a boat to drift off course? Nothing. You do nothing. No steering, no calibrating, no redirecting, and the boat will drift off course. Do you know what you need to do for clay to become hard? Nothing. Let the clay sit there. Don't mold it. Don't spin it. Let it sit there. Do nothing, and the clay will become hard. See, we think rebellion against God is this clenched fist saying, no, when rather it looks like, nah. I'm okay. Not me. I don't care. It's just going along and doing nothing. I'm almost four years into my marriage with Rachel, and I've told Rachel, and we've talked about this many times, that I can see why spouses can look at each other in 20 years and wonder who they're married to. Because it is easy to get consumed with raising children and keeping the home, and working, that you forget to fight for one another in the actual marriage, that you look up in 20 years and you've drifted apart because you haven't fought for one another and you've done nothing to rekindle the love that you had at first. So the same is true for friendships. I mean, think about it. What do you need to do for a friendship to drift apart? Nothing. Don't talk on the phone. Don't see each other. Don't hang out. And over time, your friendships will drift apart. Jesus' critique is that the church in Ephesus is apathetic towards Jesus. And apathy is killing churches everywhere. You know what apathy means? Think about it. Apolitical. What does apolitical mean? Not political. So pathos means deep feeling. So a pathos means no feeling, lack of passion, lack of internal response. Apathy is a cancer that eats away at our spirit. So the first thing about an apathetic church is that there is a lack of love for Christ. That's what, what they're being told. The picture in Revelation 2 is that of Jeremiah 2 verse 2. Listen to Jeremiah 2, verse 2, the Old Testament prophet. He says, Remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me, 
and you followed me through the desert. It's a picture of devotion and love, like a bride and a bridegroom. Young love. Now, some of you know the story of Rachel and I getting together. And, and I, that I met her at a wedding that I officiated in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I was the creepy single mi- you know, minister. I was like, hey, how you doing? Uh, so, <laughs> so we met uh, at, an, at a wedding that I officiated. And uh, actually, we met on the dance floor. And we danced for 30 minutes before we ever talked. Then we talked, and I realized I need need to get to know this girl more. And so I rallied all my guy friends, and I said, wherever they're going, that's where we're going. And so we followed them. And, And then I made up an excuse to drive to Birmingham, Alabama two weeks later so that I could see her again. And then two weeks after that, I flew to see her again. One time I drove back to Durham in the middle of the night because I had something on Sunday that I couldn't miss because I just had to go see her. To young love, it forsakes sleep. It gives flowers and gifts. It plans and it longs. Early on in our relationship, we could do anything as long as we were together because we just enjoyed one another. I was with some pastor friends this past week and we always talk about our marriages. We pray for one another And all the guys know my story, but one guy in particular was praying for me, and he prayed for Rachel and I. He prayed that we would have now, woo, (laughs) I wasn't planning that, would have now and always nights like the night we met, dancing and lost in one another. And I thought, what a great prayer. Because many of you know who are married, or you've seen your parents' marriages, or you've seen other people's marriages, how easy it is to drift into becoming that couple that you might see out at a restaurant. And they're sitting at a table, they've been married for 20 plus years, and they don't even have words to say. No desire to connect a couple that's lost passion. And Jesus is saying that this church has become cold, passionless, without feeling, apathetic towards Jesus, their first love. So how does that happen? You stop dancing. Rachel and I love to dance. And when you enjoy dancing, you don't think too much. You just let go and you enjoy the moment. I don't know how many of you were at the Reality Ministries talent show on Monday night. Uh, Many of the acts were people dancing. And I loved it because they were free and they were smiling and enjoying life. It really was a beautiful picture of heaven. So you stop dancing when God and the gospel become facts or just theoretical starting point. That the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they just become facts or old hat for you rather than God becoming and being a consuming passion. Let me tell you two ways that you know you've abandoned your first love, Jesus. There's a lack of love for each other. Lack of love for each other. Commentators note that the church in Ephesus was commended early on in their life by Paul for being full of love for one another. If you were here, we preached through the the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And there was beautiful unity, a love for one another. But now, 30 years later, they lacked love and there was strife and there was discord. Ephesus was a church plant. When at the beginning they had deep camaraderie, a deep love for one another, but as the church got older and more established, there was bitterness and dissension. And I will tell you that that is scary 
for me as a church planter. And makes me pray for this church that's just two years old. Because I know for some of you, you came into this church wide-eyed and excited. And now you may not be loving how things are going. People that you thought might be fast friends are now brothers and sisters that you might talk about behind their backs. There are people in this community that just rub you the wrong way and perhaps you're, you're harboring ill feelings. I don't know, but God does Amen. because He walks among us. Second way you know you've abandoned a love for Jesus is that there is a lack of love for the mission. It's no accident that Jesus calls the church's lampstands. They are to be a light unto the world, a light unto the nations, evangelism and social justice, a love for those on the outside and a love for those on the margins. When you come to know Christ for the first time and you hear the good news and you become part of a church community, you're excited about sharing the news and serving for Christ. But over time, serving on Sunday mornings by maybe being an usher, or serving in the children's ministry, or serving by leading a city group, or being on a servant team, begins to feel just a little old. Now, I will say this, everybody needs a break. Everybody needs a, a break. But over time, our passion can be taken away. Because you lose a sense of mission. See, at first you were serving and sharing for the sake of Christ and His church, and a passion for Christ was fueling it. But over time, a passion of Christ is removed. And, a, and what was passing out bulletins to welcome new people into our community becomes just another task for you to do in this church plant. Timothy and I were talking this past week that pastorally we need to be bold enough to tell many of you to stop doing things. Many of you need to stop serving and stop feeling guilty like you need to go do more and go rest and go hear the music of the gospel and let it move you to dance because when you're dancing, you will serve and be on mission because you're fueled by Christ. So how do you return? How do you return to this first love of loving Christ? I'll tell you there's no... three-step, five-step solution. It's not an easy solution, but I want to give you some application. The first, again, Jesus walks among us, right? Jesus knows you. Jesus knows your heart and your desires and your irritations and your passions and your lack of passion. The question is, do you? Do you? Do you know your own heart? Do you know why you really are irritated? Or you're angry? Or you're ashamed? Or you're sad? John Calvin and his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion began by saying that a relationship with God requires two things, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of self. Do you know yourself? Do you know where you are this morning? God does. God does. So take time and go be with the Lord. Go get in silence and in solitude and ask the Lord to meet you and reveal to you where you are. Here's the second thing. Remember and repent. Remember. Remembering in the Bible, it's not just calling something to mind. 
It's actually taking the time and the space to hear the music and let it move you to dance. It means that you, you will get away and, and just go enjoy the presence of God and let the love of Christ wash over you and let it lead you to repent of a cold and callous heart. When was the last time that you sat down without time restraints and you just went for a walk to talk with God? Or you went to a park and marveled at creation? Or you opened up the Bible and you just let God's words be fresh to you? Now, I know there are people here this morning that are not Christians, and you would say Christ is not your first love. And I love that honesty. And I would say we as Christians should learn from that honesty because as one pastor said, if Christ is worth loving at all, He's worth loving first, not second or third. So let's be honest about where our love lies. You're a Christian or not a Christian. This passage preaches the good news of the gospel to us all this morning. We should hear the music and it should make us dance because look at verse 7, the last verse, which kind of seems like a throwaway verse, but it's not. Look at, look at verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The gift of God is the tree of life. Not sure if that rings a bell for any of you, but the tree of life is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Adam and Eve have the tree of life in the garden. Fullness of life with God. But then in Genesis 3, they fall into sin and they're banished from the garden and banished from the tree of life. And God set in front of this tree, the tree of life, a cherubim with a sword of justice flashing back and forth, barring access to the tree. If you keep reading in the Old Testament later in the book of Exodus, God gives direction for the building of the tabernacle, which was the place of God's presence. In the Holy of Holies, God dwelt there and only the chief priest could enter. And separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was a veil. Do you know what was on the veil? Cherubim. Cherubim barring access into God's presence except through a mediator. And at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, on the tree, that very veil was torn in two. So through Christ, the mediator, God is now available to all who come by faith in Him. How's God available to us who've been banished from the garden because Jesus passed under the sword of justice? On the cross, Jesus took the stroke and the punishment of justice for our apathy and for our rebellion. Jesus gives us access to the tree of life today and to fullness of life with God. That is our hope for those who trust Christ that we come to God through Jesus. Dan and Grace they were, by God's goodness and by His grace, rescued from the riptide and brought out from what appeared like death to a new life. And I think they would tell you a new life with a new perspective and new purpose. That their days and their years will be forever changed because of this new perspective they have of being ripped away and then brought back to life. When we understand the danger of abandoning our first love, and we drift away, 
And then by God's grace, he is faithful and he draws us back to himself and raises us to new life. We can hear the music of the gospel and we can dance. And it will impact our days and our years forever. John says, remember, repent, and do. Do the acts you did at first. You will do extravagant acts of love for the one that you love. Like I did for Rachel when we were dating. You would do anything. When you are rekindling a love for Christ, or you're brought to the love of Christ for the first time, you will want to do things for the sake of Jesus. Extravagant things. Like forgive somebody who's hurt you deeply. To small things like speak a word of encouragement to someone at work. Or bring a meal to a neighbor who is in need. When we are experiencing the love of Christ to to us and know that God loved us first, we'll dance and we'll be changed and we will love Him and we will love others. So Christ Central, I pray that we will never ever be a church that abandons our first love. That people will see our lives and our dancing, and our joy, and our grace, and our mercy, and know that we can't help but live that way. That we just have to, because we're in love. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would draw us back to yourself, open our eyes and our hearts for the first time, whatever you need to do to wake us up to the beauty of your extravagant love. May we know it afresh this morning. Thank you that the Lord Jesus, you loved us. Because of you, your love towards us, we can love you. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.